0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter. As we continue our study, we are talking about adding to our faith. And that may seem like um, we are increasing it. We are not. We are not talking about increasing faith. Remember that we studied that two weeks ago, that it is sufficient. Our faith is sufficient. It is there within all men. They have sufficient faith. It is a matter of where it is directed, whether we are directing it towards something that is worthy of our faith. And so while others trust in rocks and in idols and things like that, uh, we trust in the living God. And so all men have a capacity of faith, uh, and so we don't find a necessity to increase our faith. The disciples asked Jesus that. Jesus did not tell them they needed more faith. They said, you have enough. All you need is the faith of a mustard seed. You don't need much of it. You just need to make it well placed, placed on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so we looked at faith as the initiation of our relationship with God. It is the beginning where we accept the free gift of Jesus Christ, of his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, that we apply that to our lives, having repented, having coming to him, confessing, and trusting in Jesus Christ. That that is that work of uh, of re- work, that That is that reception of the gift of God into our life. But yet it is just the beginning of the Christian walk. It is not the culmination of it. And so God calls us that we are to add something, to supply that faith with some things. And here Peter has given us seven attributes, uh, seven aspects of what we are to add to our faith. So we, you believe in God, you have trusted in him, great start. But if it ends there and it never grows, never is there a, a following after the truths of God's word, an exploration of the truths of God's word and the application of those truths, then we are stagnated and our faith is really brought into question. Are we really followers of Jesus Christ or are we just someone who fulfilled a religious ritual sometime in our past? And there's a great distinction between those in God's word. And so we are called to supply, is really the word, to, to give bounty to our faith, to add to it these elements. And Peter lists them here, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. We'll begin, it says, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, And so we have this expectation that we are not going to sit back and, and rest on our laurels, so to speak, that, uh, in terms of our walk with God. That once we've initiated that through this uh, faith event in our life where we have trusted in Christ as our Savior, the expectation is, is that now with an open eyes that we are now going to walk in a manner that is pleasing to God. And certainly we want to see that we want to see a growing to our christianity rather than a stagnation and there's no in between you're either going to grow in the lord or you're going to be stagnated there's no middle ground where we can somehow kind of kinda of, sorta of follow jesus but not fully follow him and there's too many who are attempting that and in the midst of that they are really stagnated in their christianity they experience a powerless faith that fails more often than it succeeds. And this is not God's intent for our life. For his followers, he intends us to be more than conquerors, the Bible says. And so we are called to to participate in this process. Now there are those that will go to passages like Galatians, which talks about the fruit of the Spirit, say, well, we are the passive recipients here of these things. that These are things that God has to supply us with. But it is very evident that God's, I mean, Peter's used the word diligent three times uh, to refer to our activity in this relationship. And a relationship is a two-way street, right? And so God's going to provide, but we are called to engage with that. And then God responds to our obedience and it goes back and forth. And this is the evidence throughout God's word. And so we want to see our faith develop and strengthened, not necessarily increase. We're not looking for more of it. We're looking for some things added to it. And so we looked last week at, at the adding virtue to our faith. And remember, virtue is that qualities of righteousness applied most often in the social settings. That is, in my engagement with people, in relationships that I am going to do right. By them, I'm going to do to them and I'm going to engage with them and with God in a right manner. And that is that concept of virtue. It's going to be a little bit different than the term godliness that we're going to encounter later on this list uh, that has much more to do with your personal identity, with what's going on inside your thoughts and your heart and your urges and your intents. Why do I do what I do is going to, apply more to godliness. Virtue is simply that I'm going to go out there, I'm going to do right in the world. I'm going to portray Christ to people. That this is something I'm going to add. That even before I add knowledge to it, I already really have a good idea of of what I'm supposed to do in relationship to fellow believers, in relationship to the lost, in relationship to um, those that were my friends, but now I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, so how do I engage with them? And so God's Word has an expectation that with an awakened conscience that occurs as we come to know Christ. Remember that before I came to faith, I was convicted of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment by the Holy Spirit. And in response to that, that godly sorrow that is produced there um, comes repentance. So I already have an awakened conscience and that doesn't disappear once I trust in Jesus Christ. It is enhanced even further and so I want to do what is right. And while I may not have all of the specific details, I can pursue these things in areas of virtue. I'm not going to be settled in that and that I have achieved that, but certainly I can immediately, even before I'm really taught a lot out of God's word, I can immediately know, well, there are certain things that need to change in my life. These things that were sins that I was convicted of, I'm going to abandon. These things that were sins of omission that I wasn't doing to please God, I'm going to embrace and this doesn't need to be extensively taught. Every brand new believer should have this desire for this righteousness. And if it is lacking, then I have to ask, was your conscience ever convicted to the point of repentance, that godly sorrow produces repentance that Romans talks about? And is there a genuineness in that faith? That there should be tears on one side of faith, And joyful obedience on the other side is very evident in God's Word. We should be weeping that we are the worst of sinners and then rejoicing that we have been made saints. This should be our experience. And so virtue is there to demonstrate to the world this transformation that has occurred to us by the power of the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ and by the resurrection from the dead of our Lord and Savior. That impact should be evident to all. While I am still a babe in the faith, while I'm still unlearned in the faith, it should still be evident that there is that faith, and that is that word virtue. We add to our faith virtue. This radical, dramatic change that has occurred because I went from being a follower of my father, the devil, to being a follower of God, my father and Jesus Christ. And so that should be evident. Well then we looked last week again that we're going to add to that virtue. To to see that virtue develop and mature we need to add to it. Yes there is a sensitivity to sin and now I recognize that I need to get rid of that. That there is some some elements of my life that need to change, and we're going to focus on those early on, and we see some of the development of that in Scripture. We talk about how the idolaters ha- had a difficult time. They couldn't eat meat because it was too close to the idolatrous practice of, of offering that meat to idols, and so they associated eating that meat with idolatry. And so in their immaturity, realizing that idols aren't anything, they say, well, no, I have to practice this, and it's it is their virtue. It is their testimony to their idolatrous family and friends. Well, I don't do that because I'm no longer acknowledged that idol as my God. So I will not partake of that. And that is the indication that there is this sudden transformation. But that transformation is is well it is uninformed. That is, it is it is. Infantile. That's what the Bible says that you have you des- you need milk like a baby. But I want to get you farther along in terms of, of not only your faith to mature, but for your virtue to be better informed. And that's why we add to virtue knowledge. And that knowledge. Again, the word here we talked about last week is not a general knowledge or a big-picture knowledge about God, but rather very practical information. What does God require of me as a believer? Oh, it's pretty simple, you would think. You know, you go to Ephesians, and it says, you know, you who were liars should not be lying anymore. You who are thieves should not be stealing more, but working with hands what is good, that you may have sufficient to share, that no longer is this profane speech coming out of your mouth, but now you're having having speech that's full of thanksgiving and is glorifying God, that there should be that transformation. But yet your virtue should be developing. And the way we develop that is through these practical passages that instruct us in that. And then to apply that, we go into our new word. To apply that knowledge of practical areas to our lives, he says, add to your knowledge self-control. And wow, this is one we don't like very much, but it is so necessary. You see, the when we come to know Christ and we, we get the radical transformation. Now we go well, I want to fine-tune my Christian walk to be more in keeping with God's expectations, that I'm going to inform my virtue. I'm going to inform my faith more and more. Uh, well, what that's going to demand of you is that you have the, you're now going to have to change a lot of things in your life. And that exercise of self-control is going to be tested over and over again. Because now you're going to be moving from having your flesh driving the decisions of your life to having the knowledge of God and his word driving it. Now you're going to transform your thinking. You're you're going to have the mind of Christ that Paul talks about in Philippians. And we're going to let that uh, be the... Urge of life now rather than the fleshly urges. I'm going to put away the flesh, I'm going to crucify the flesh so that I can live for Christ in this new man. And all these passages that talk about you're an old cre- creation, now you're a new creature. It is time to glorify God in these manners. I want to be informed about that, but just that information is not enough. Now you have to add to that information self control because you're going to have to go in and meddle in your life and change things that are really, really hard to change because you have been ingrained in it by your society. And you have even been taught that these things that God says are sin are virtues. That somehow being self-seeking and self-interested, that that's a virtue. Well, you got to watch out for number one, don't you, when the Bible says that that is one of the evidences that you are not a follower of Jesus Christ. And so we find that we have all of these areas of life that now need to be addressed. And some of the hardest areas of life to be addressed, according to James, is our speech. Wow, how hard it is to change our speech, isn't it? And you guys know this, that I encounter things, I say, well, I don't want to use that term anymore. And it takes a long time to get terminology out of your vocabulary that you are so accustomed to all your life and that so many people around you are using. Why? Because I want to conform it to God's word. And I want it to be accurate. And I want it to reflect more of what's really going on in my heart. And it takes an enormous amount of self-control to bring about that change. As much as you have this dramatic transformation at your faith event is how gradual the other events of adding to it are of trying to bring knowledge into our life to transform it okay and so um mr mckelp already mentioned about the our our study on times and seasons out of the bible and how much now I have all this information that, boy, we're, now I, I recognize Saturday isn't the Sabbath at all. It can't be. Uh, maybe occasionally, but no, I have this informed understanding now because I've studied God's Word. Now I have to transform it, and that process is very difficult to do, especially given all the things around us. And, and to change vocabulary, and I'm not going to talk about that. That that really isn't the Sabbath. And and if we really want to celebrate the Sabbath, we've got to go to a lunar calendar, abandon the solar calendar. Boy, that's all hard. Right? Because I've been trained in that since a child. Even the designation, and this is something that went out when (laughs) we were in Israel and Greece, and the transition to the Greek, I was like, oh, you know, what's... What's the name of this first day of the week in Greece? And it's, what's well, the Lord's Day. Well, that makes a whole lot more sense calling the first day of the week the Lord's Day than Sunday. Because we don't worship the sun, S-U-N. We worship the Lord. And, in, and so it caught my heart. Well, I'm still transitioning. And it's going to be a transition for the rest of my life because I've been ingrained in this. And so we have to add to our knowledge self-control. That I'm going to have to discipline myself to apply this knowledge to my virtue. Now, this isn't new. This has been the experience of the people of faith throughout time. And so I'm going to give you two or three illustrations of this out of the Old Testament of this hard work that it takes, this self-control that it takes to go from having a, a wonderful, exciting faith event to saying, oh man, now I need to be more disciplined in this and in this and in this and in this and, in this, and how it just grows. So let's go back. Some, these should be some that you're very familiar with. Uh, you know, I have three. Maybe I'll only do one or two. Let me mention a couple of them and we're going to study one of them. How about that? Otherwise, I'll never get to the next word. And I really want to get to the next two words this morning. Um, so, Josiah, King Josiah. Israel was in trouble. They were disobedient, Judah. And, and a guy comes along, a very young king comes on the scene. His name is Josiah. He has followed, he has followed several wicked predecessors, uh, and, and in fact, some that did really bad and to the point that God says, I'm going to judge you. But Josiah comes on the scene, and he says, we're going to fix the temple. Everyone gets excited. They're all thrilled. We're going to rejuvenate and renew ourselves. We're going to to put all the repairs into the temple, and this is exciting, and all these reforms start to happen under this wonderful young king named Josiah. And it's exciting, and things are thrilling, and then while they're doing all the repair work, they, they find this chamber in the temple area that had been blocked off, cordoned off somehow, and they come across a copy of the law. Now that might seem strange to you, that we're doing all these reforms and nobody had a copy of the law to know what to do. But they were excited. Josiah is a godly king. He wants to serve God. The temple has something to do with it. He doesn't have all the information, but he knows that at least he should be doing something there. We should have the right people. Well, they find the law in there, and they open it up, and they go, oh, man, oh, boy, oh, no, oh, we're not doing anything right. And now their virtue is being informed. Oh boy, God wants us to do this. God wants us to do that. God wants us to do this. We got a lot of work ahead of us. And Josiah said, let's do it. Let's do it right. And they did it. And the Bible says it had never been done like that since the days of David. That they served the Lord rightly, according to his word. Wow, that means Solomon didn't do it as well. You go through, Uzziah didn't do it, Josiah, he was the guy, and no one had done it like that. He, He had this desire to add to his virtue, this knowledge, and then exercise himself, discipline himself, to say, let's do it exactly the way the Bible says. How exciting. And they went from one point of virtue to a new level of virtue. Because they applied themselves, they disciplined themselves, they had self-control, and they applied it to that. Another example, let's go ahead and look at this other example. Let's turn your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. We'll study this one. I have another example out of Jeremiah, but let's go to Nehemiah. Nehemiah, what exciting times, right? Nehemiah, we have the cupbearer of the king, and Zerubbabel had already taken a group of, of Jews to Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple, and now we are later on, and, and Nehemiah here gets word back from that group saying, well, the temple's rebuilt, but the walls are broken down, we're kind of in a treacherous situation here, we're at the mercy of our enemies around about us, he is concerned about that, he goes to the king and, and doesn't, isn't happy in front of the king, which could lose your head for that. And the king says, what's going on? And he says, well, this is the condition. So the king sends him with all these resources to rebuild the walls. A whole group of people go with him, including one Ezra, a priest. And they go and they are excited. And you can read the first few chapters. All this exciting things happen. And they're rebuilding the wall. They're energized. They're doing their work. And each one is taking a, each family is taking a section of the wall or taking a gate. And they're going to each build their own section of the wall. And I'm responsible for this. And the one family had no sons. The guy only had daughters. And guess what? Him and all those daughters are out there building their section of the wall. Because they're going to take their responsibility. And that's exciting. You say, wow, what, what wonderful people of faith. And I would agree with you fully. But then something happened. Ezra the priest In chapter 7, verse 1, Then it was, when the wall was built, and I had hung the doors, when the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, and I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hananiah, and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, and he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. And I was like, wow, this is great. Everything is going well. And we say hallelujah to the Lord, right? To the Lord. We say glory to God. Then we get down to verse 5. It says, then my God put it into my heart to gather the nobles, the rulers, and the people that they might be registered by genealogy. I found a register of the genealogy of those who had come up in the first return and found written in it. And so now we're going to go through all this genealogy and they're gonna, it goes on, 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 on. And they're going to make sure that that's right. And that's going to be a big deal later on. Because by the end of the book, we're going to say, wait a minute, we got some mixed marriages here that need to be taken care of. So this genealogy is kind of important, but let's keep going. Let's jump ahead, get through the genealogy to chapter 8. We're in the seventh month now. Verse 1 says, Now all the people gathered together, as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women, and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning till midday before the men and women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. They were going to stand there and listen to the law being read. These aren't, this is Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, you know, those favorite parts of your Bible for you. And they were going to listen to it. And he just kept reading and reading. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. When he opened it, all the people stood up. They weren't sitting down to listen to this. They wanted to stand and honor it. They had the right spirit, the right attitude. They were people of faith. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, that all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. They bow their heads and worship the Lord with their faces to the ground, and very exciting. These are people who love God and want to serve him, want to worship him, but their faith is not well informed, but it is about to be. Verse 8, so they read distinctly from the book and the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. That's what we do here. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest, the scribe, the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Because they realized they weren't obeying all of it. He says, this is a great day of joy. Yes, we got a long ways to go, but it is a time not to weep. But they realized they, they weren't Obeying it all. Verse 11, I'm jumping around a little bit. So Levi quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. Now, on the second day, okay, first day of reading, everyone's like, Oh man, I'm not obeying God at all like I should be. No, it's a holy day. You got to hear the truth. Don't weep. Go out there and rejoice that now you know. And now we can conform ourselves. We can exercise self-discipline. So the second day comes along, and they're all gathered together, and they're the leaders of the people, the priests, the Levites, Ezra the scribe, in order to understand the words of the law. Verse 14, they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the mountain and bring olive branches, branches of olive oil trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of leafy trees, to make booths as is written. Then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house, or in the courtyards, in the courts of the house of the God, in the open square of the water gate, and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from their captivity made booths and sat under the booths For since the days of Joshua, until the day of Israel, had not done so, and there was great gladness. Also, day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days. On the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly, according to the prescribed manner. Wow! It hadn't been kept since the days of Joshua. But they are so sensitive to the truths of God's Word because they wanted to add to their virtue knowledge. And once they had the knowledge, they wept because they said, I'm not keeping it the way it should be kept. And the second day comes around and they say, okay, let's exercise some self-control. Okay, we're emotional about God's Word, great. You, you know, you wept over it, you're sorry that you weren't keeping it. Fine, but that doesn't solve the problem. The problem is we need to be obedient to it. We have to do something with this knowledge that we've gained. We need, if we're going to make it of any value to our virtue. And so we exercise ourselves in our discipline. And then the second day it says, okay, we, we missed this and now we've read it this part. And it happens to be the seventh month and we're supposed to be doing this. So let's get busy. You see, we can be constantly about learning, 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 learning. We can even look at that truth from God's word and say, well, that's not really how we do things now. And we can just kind of skip over that and says, we should probably think about doing that someday. But you haven't added self-control to your knowledge. Because self-control says, I'm going to change my behavior to conform to this knowledge, and thus I will be more virtuous before God add to your virtue knowledge, have an informed conscience, and now with that informed conscience, go out there and do it. Change it. And this is what mature, spiritually alive people do. They don't ignore it. They don't blow it off. They don't try to explain it away in terms of, oh, that's just culture. That has nothing to know. These people were very far removed, And even though many, many generations of Israel did not keep the Feast of Tabernacles the way they should, I mean, this is even David. This is during the Judges. This is even Samuel's time. Not since Joshua. Since Joshua died, they haven't kept this until now. And interesting, they keep it today. They have kept it since then. Why? Why? because they had a uh, they were reinvigorated, they wanted to add to their faith this knowledge. And so then they added this practice and now they've kept it faithfully that we're going to go out and we're going to live in a tent for a week. This isn't camping. this is this is a very purposeful feasting before the Lord uh, to remember the wilderness wanderings of Israel. that we're going to keep this in the, seventh month which is around september somewhere in that time period in the fall the harvest is pretty much done and now we're going to go out there we're going to live in these tents to commemorate this time when god cared for us in the wilderness where our shoes didn't wear out where the manna kept coming the quail the water god preserved us till that generation passed that were disobedient. And so the people conformed themselves. Now remember, they just read and realized we should be doing a genealogy. And they said, well, what's the genealogy all about? Well, when you get to the end of it, the wall's dedicated and everything is going on. And we get to the last chapter, chapter 13, um, and... Again, verse 1, says, On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people and found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of God because they had not met the children of Israel with bread and water but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So it was when they had heard the law that they separated all the mixed multitude from Israel. You anyway, might say, well, that's just, you know, you're just going to take the Moabite, these people and separate them off and distinguish them. No, this is about people's wives. Yes. They had to separate themselves from some of their wives that they had married who, weren't, who had not converted to Judaism, who kept themselves in that condition. And so the priest comes on the scene and they have to exercise incredible amounts of discipline To say, we want to obey the law. We want to obey this information that I have from God that has informed my faith and my virtue. So why do we study God's word? Not just to get more information. At some point we want to add even practical information. We talked about that last week. Of the practical information of God's word. How you should dress, how you should worship, how you should talk, how you should uh, live, how how your family life should be. All of that is there in God's Word. What is the relationship between a husband and wife? Well, we have that. Between children and their parents, we have that. We have these instructions. And and a lot of the virtue in terms of the public, the, the social aspects, we have extensively given to us. How we should worship. There should be songs, hymns, spiritual songs. We should be doing that. And all of those are there. We should be in God's Word. We should be then applying it. And so we can study all these things and we can read it. But if we do not apply them, then exercise self-control. And the other word, by the way, is perseverance, which means that there's a long-term part to this. All right, It's not just I'm going to change it one week. I'm going to change it from now on. I'm going to persevere in this. I'm going to be patient And whether God blesses it today or next week or next year isn't relevant. I'm going to persist in this, uh, and I know that God will be pleased by it. I'm going to apply, I'm going to add to my my self-control perseverance. I'm going to press on in this. So many of the aspects of our worship have changed over the history of this church. Why? Because I got convicted. And you can do one of two things with conviction. You can ignore and keep doing your life the way you want. Or you can say, well, I need to change this. And when you're in a leadership role, whether it be a husband, a parent, a pastor, in that environment, it's your responsibility to lead that change. And so, I'm still studying God's word. I'm still trying to have my words mean what I believe instead of what I was taught. I'm still trying to conform our worship to God's word better and better. And so, we take a book like Corinthians I talked about last week, and we say, well, I read this, now how should I apply it? And I'm pretty sure most Christians don't believe that 1 Corinthians 11 is real because we sure aren't trying to live it. We don't want to make that application. We don't want to apply self-discipline to this knowledge. Rather, we want to exercise our intellect to explain why I don't have to obey this. And we are wonderfully good at that, aren't we? (laughs) To not inform our faith, but rather to dissuade our faith from pleasing God. I'm going to convince myself why I don't have to obey that passage. Why I don't have to obey this passage. Why I don't have to obey that passage. That instruction of God. This instruction of God. Oh, that we would have the attitude of the people in the times of Nehemiah that says, if God's word says it, We don't just believe it and give lip service to it. We are going to let it change how we worship. Even if it goes against the norm of society, I'm going to let it impact me to the point I'm going to apply myself in self-discipline and in perseverance, that though people want to ridicule, people want to say, what is your problem? Why are you so weird? I say, well, I don't know. I, don't, I just obey God's word. That's the simple solution. And the question really should be, why aren't you? And I don't lord that over anybody because if they don't have that knowledge or they had not had that conviction over that knowledge, then it is wrong for me to enforce that on them. I don't force any of it on anyone because I believe the Holy Spirit should convict you of that through his word because that's his sword, sword of the spirit. And when it cuts you, you have a choice. You can ignore it, run away from it, or you can respond to it by obedience. And that requires incredible self-control and perseverance. I'm going to persist and I'm going to keep obeying it no matter how much ridicule comes my way. And so when a pastor from another country comes to me and says, why don't you worship like this? When the, and he opens God's word and says, here it is, it's stated right here. My conclusion is, you're right, I'm wrong, I need to change. Period. Even though I was trained, well trained, even in seminary, of a way to get around it. You know what other group of people did that? Tried to get around the law instead of just obeying the law? Jesus condemned them. They were called Pharisees. Jesus says, oh, you want to tie the mitt and the cumin, but then you're over here and you're doing evil. And it's like, how do you rectify those? Well, you know, we worked our way around the law. So now I can travel as far as I want as long as I take a few possessions and every so many steps drop a thing. I says, now it starts over. And then it's not work on the Sabbath. You see, they found ways around the law. And so many of us come to God's word with that fundamental attitude. And that's why our faith is stagnant. Because we aren't willing to really let it impact our lives and apply ourselves in the area of self-control and perseverance to make it happen. We want an informed faith and then we just kind of log that in our mind back there somewhere. Oh, I have this knowledge. Big deal. Do you know how many people die of lung cancer who knows that cigarette smoke causes lung cancer and keep smoking? They know it hurts them and yet it does nothing because they don't exercise the self-control to get that out of their life so that they can have healthy lungs. You see, knowledge does not equal benefit until you apply self-control and perseverance to it. Peter knows this, and so he says, listen, add to your knowledge self-control, add to your self-control perseverance. Don't just change for a week, change for a life. For the balance of your life. Change this. So when I figure out from God's word in our times and seasons study, and we demonstrate it very clearly, that when, uh, that Passover is probably off by two weeks, and therefore our Easter celebration is also off by two weeks, when I look into God's word and I discern that, well, it seems pretty evident that Jesus was born on September 11th and not on December 25th. Well, that's got to have an impact. I have to make a decision now. Do I just log that in my mind and say, well, that's an interesting fact, uh, and do nothing? Or do I let it transform me? Do I add self-control and perseverance to my knowledge? I know it. Now I have to do it. And that's hard work. And there's going to be a lot of resistance. And I'm not just talking as a pastor getting resistance from my people. I'm talking about resistance from within me. Because at first I'm resistant, because all of us are resistant to those kinds of fundamental changes in our life. You mean I, and by the way, a lot of you went to see what 1 Corinthians 11 said. 1 Corinthians 11 said that women should have a, a symbol of authority on their head when they pray and prophesy. It's pretty clear. It's point blank. It's not hard. Why do we resist it? Your grandparents didn't. Easter is coming up next I know it's this week in the Roman world. In the Greek world, it's next week. Um, so you do remember, maybe at least in song, and if you watch old movies, that there was something very special that every woman got at Easter. Do you know what it was? A new Easter bonnet. Why did they get a new... They even sing about it, you know, the crooners back then, uh, I got this new Easter bonnet. Why did you get a new Easter bonnet every year? To wear to church. Because that's because you wore out the other one. How'd you wear out the other one? Wearing it to church every week. And you needed a new one. Because you wore it out, wearing it to church. Every time you pray and prophesy, that's teaching. And, and we're gonna, every time I'm gonna cover my head, I'm gonna have a symbol of authority over my head. And conversely, 1 Corinthians 11 says that men should not have that. They should have their heads uncovered while they're worshiping. And our Jewish brothers with the yarmulke thing got to read that somewhere. This is about authority. When did we ever learn? So now we have that information. I've read that. Now what am I going to do with that? Well, that's a cultural thing. That's a Pharisee thing, what you just said. I've stopped doing that. So I want it to transform my life. I want to add to my knowledge about God's word with self-control and perseverance. And if I can persist in that, if I'm persistently applying God's word with self-control and saying, I'm going to change my speech. I no longer want to say these profane words that that focus on the false gods of the Greeks and Romans. And, And I would love to stop saying Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I would love to stop saying all of those. I'm only working out on one so far and that's Lord's Day, okay? Uh, I don't know what to do with the other ones, but they're all named after false gods. Why are we doing that? I hate it. Every time I use that, I hate it. I'll see you on Monday. I don't worship the moon. just like I don't worship the Sun. just like I don't worship Mars. Or any other ones? I worship one true living God that's really hard I'm not saying that that um, and so we we start this process of conforming myself but a wonderful thing happens as I exercise self-control I have my urges the same as you I have my fleshly appetites the same as you but that's what it means to bring them under control Paul says, I beat my body into submission. I'm going to make myself obey if I have to do that. I'm going to make sure this body conforms to God's word. I know its natural urges are, women, I know your natural urges are to resist authority. That's part of the curse in the Garden of Eden. Your desire will be after your husband's place. I know that. It is part of the curse. But the wonderful thing about the blood of Jesus Christ is it undoes the curse. Now you have the liberty to do something different. But it takes work because you have, you have the flesh and the spirit at war. The flesh has no power, but it's still present. And if you cuddle up to it, it has influence. And that's true for all of us. And that's why exercising self-control with perseverance is so necessary. But a wonderful thing happens over the long term. As we do that, as I exercise self-control in this area, and then in this area, and then in this area, and and I do it persistently, and I just keep going and going and going and going and going and going, and, and pretty soon I can add something to that, and that is now all those thoughts, motives, desires are now godly. And that's the next word. Add to your perseverance godliness. You see it there in 1 Peter? Something happens now. You're going to add godliness to perseverance. What does that mean? We talked about virtue as being more of a social doing what's right. Godliness is about mostly about internally being right. That you are going to be godly. I want to please God in everything. And now my my natural urges are so quiet. They are so removed from my daily expression that now I have these spiritual urges that are godliness. And I have these pursuits in mind. And now I can trust something. I can trust my desires. And this is why the Bible says, you know, he who desires to be a bishop desires a good thing. That's in Timothy, right? Well, now I can trust my desires. Why? Because I have (laughs) added something to my faith. I have this relationship with Jesus Christ. I've added virtue. I've added that virtue. I've intensified and matured my virtue through knowledge, practical knowledge. I have taken just practical, not just knowing it, but I do it. I do it not just once or twice, but I do it persistently. And now I have become godly. Now my urges, my motives, my thoughts, the intents of my heart now are to please God and I can now follow them. And we understand that essentially I can't follow my heart over here even as a new believer fully because it's not well informed and it hasn't been disciplined to be obedient to God. That takes time. But after we invest that time, suddenly my urges are no longer of this world. And suddenly I'm out here, you know, building a building and uh, the, to live in. And I'm like, I wish Christ would come and I could go live with him instead of in this house. Well, I'm still building the house, right? So... because I have a place to live, but it's just this body. I'm not, this isn't the the culmination for me. I'm waiting for a home in heaven. I'm waiting for a new body, a new residence. That's where my longing is. That's where the urges of my heart is. I don't really want to waste a whole lot of time on the things of this world anymore. Why? Because my heart has been conditioned and is now godly. Because And that doesn't just happen overnight. It happens when we add virtue to our faith, add knowledge to our virtue, add self-control to our knowledge, add perseverance to our self-control, and then suddenly now I can trust the urges of my life. And I want to serve God. And the motives of my life are now transformed, and now they are godly motives. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Or well, I'm not doing it for myself, or I'm not doing it for the reasons the world might think I'm doing it. I know other people might be doing the same things I'm doing, but they have very different motives than my motives, and thus I'm exploring godliness. Godliness is about internal righteousness that men don't see, but God sees. Where are you at there? Why are you here? Why do you go to church? See, that reveals your motives. You can be all going to church, but all have very different motives. When I was a child, I went to church because my parents made me go to church. When I was a teenager and rebellious, I went to church because there were pretty girls there, maybe. Uh, It might might have been the only reason sometimes. Uh, What are your motives? Hopefully they change. Hopefully when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, your motives for church are less ritualistic and more, I can't wait for God's word. I can't wait to be among God's people. I am starving and hungry for all that waits me at church. I can't wait to sing with all of my voice, with a choir of believers, the glories of God. Can't wait. You see, your motives matter. How am I going to make my motives godly? By exercising yourself in all these areas. I'm going to add to my virtue knowledge. Practical information on how I should be doing my life. God's way. And that includes not only your worship, but Your finances, your dress, what does modesty mean? What does it look like? Um, Your, your, all these things. Now I'm going to keep practicing that with self-discipline. I'm going to self-control. I'm going to come in and I'm going to keep doing it. I'm going to persevere in it. And something wonderful, when I, the urges of my life are no longer about this world anymore. I just want to please God. Better this week than I did last week. I want to be more obedient. And this is not something that I can enforce in other people's lives. We can't short circuit this process. Now, we can help the process, right? By teaching, that helps the process. Paul says part of the process is for you to follow my example, Um, and I'll try to be an example of it to you. Follow my example. If you don't know, say, well, you know, this guy knows. I'll follow him until I figure it out myself, and then my motives can change. Then my, I'll have that knowledge and that practice and, and that can help this process. So certainly there are helps, but you can't, you can't abbreviate this process. You can help it but you can't short-circuit it. Because there are too many people that are out there doing the right things, thinking that by that they are really going to gain an entrance to heaven, and that's not true. You must have faith in Jesus Christ. You can't short-circuit that. And there are lots of people out there that are treating other people well, but that doesn't mean that they are virtuous in the sense of adding to that faith. That are willing to share. We teach children to share, but out of context. Why do your children share? Because they're afraid. They're afraid of getting whooped on or getting their toy taken away because they didn't share it. Right? They share for selfish reasons. Is that sound, How can you share for selfish reasons? Yes, you treat you teach them to do that. If you don't share that, I'm taking away from you. Well, I don't want it taken away from me, so I'll share it. Who are they watching out for the other person? It's because they love the other person. No, it's because they want to keep the thing for themselves a little bit, right? We want to have right motives. That's godliness. If we short circuit this process, we don't end there. We reinforce ungodliness in our life, and that's why you see people, the Pharisees, walking around proud. Why were they all proud about their self-righteousness? Because they didn't deal with the internalizing of the knowledge of God and the virtue of God and apply themselves with self-control and perseverance so that now they changed inside to be more conformed in their desires that then overflowed into their life. We're going to see next week a little bit more, well, two weeks A little bit more as we look into the last two words on this list, and certainly they're building out of the first five that we're adding to our faith. Brethren, hard work, sobering work, humbling work to say, I've been doing it wrong all these years. How stubborn am I? I've been doing it wrong all these years. How stupid am I? Why couldn't I read this, understand it, and apply it to my life? Hopefully, those, rather than, I'm just rebellious. And if that's the case, we weep and repent. Let the Holy Spirit convict us. But our desires, if you want, the desires of my heart, God says he'll give you the desires of your heart so that when you pray, his answer to your prayers are always yes. That's what I understand from John chapter 15, 14, 15, and 16. Ask anything in my name, and I'll give it to you. Well, I don't want more stuff on this earth. I have a hard enough time taking care of the stuff I have. Um, I want to serve him more. You see, the desires that you're asking for are transformed, and this is the process to transform them in your life. I want to challenge you and encourage you to pursue that. You're not going to arrive all in one day. I haven't. I'm still doing what Paul said. I press on to the prize. I'm still striving. And I don't want to ever stop at this point. I don't want to ever just say, I've arrived, and now everyone should know. I want to keep being as obedient to God's word as as carefully and closely as I can till his coming. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your word, and Lord, we thank you for the testimony of many in history who have been confronted with your word. They loved you, they wanted to serve you, but they didn't know how. And When they were confronted with your word, they wept over their disobedience, over their ignorance, and then proceeded to obey you. Lord, we want to be that kind of people. Help us to be sensitive enough that when we read your word and know we're not obeying it, that we weep. We've been so ignorant for so long. We've been uh, avoiding instead of embracing your commands. And then, Lord, we thank you for your Spirit's help to strengthen us, to give us that power by which we can follow after you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. You've not left us alone, but we have him to comfort us, to strengthen us, to enlighten us. Lord, help us to walk in the Spirit each day. We know what that means. We need to be in conformity to your word rather than to our society, rather to our own ideas of what we should or shouldn't be. Lord, help us. You have helped us today in this place through your word. Now, Lord, we pray that we might be renewed in our commitment to become godly as your followers. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.